Maura Healy will be sworn in as the governor of Massachusetts today, the first openly lesbian woman elected to lead a state in American history. It's Thursday, January 5th. This is WBMR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we'll hear from the incoming governor on her priorities in office. Massachusetts should continue to lead. We're a state that punches above its weight. And in this time, particularly nationally, I want us to be leading. WBUR will have live coverage of Healy's inauguration beginning this morning at 11. Also this hour, it'll be day three of voting for a House Speaker with congressional Republicans showing no sign of unifying. Getting the job done is what we were elected to do. And that starts with having a leader who supports Republican principles. And reviewing the security of the nation's power grid. Rain and freezing rain today around 40. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Today's the third day the House of Representatives will meet, and they still don't have a speaker. Republican leader Kevin McCarthy only needs a handful more of Republican votes to win, but a group of about 20 Republican hardliners is entrenched against him. McCarthy has lost six ballots for the speakership, and he may well lose a seventh vote today. NPR's Deirdre Walsh says some of McCarthy's backers and opponents have met and talked, but there's still no progress. There are starting to be more talks. A McCarthy uh, aide said there's been a group that's been sort of reaching out. I've been watching inside the chamber, and there's all kinds of really intense huddles in different groups around the floor. But we may be reaching a point where some members are starting to say out loud that McCarthy may need to step aside. NPR's Deirdre Walsh reporting. The funeral for former Pope Benedict XVI has concluded at the Vatican. Pope Francis celebrated the funeral mass. Tens of thousands of people attended. Benedict's coffin has returned inside St. Peter's Basilica. He's requested that it be buried in the underground Vatican grottos with some of his predecessors. Starting today, the U.S. is requiring all travelers coming from China to present a negative coronavirus test from an approved laboratory. NPR's Emily Fang reports China is seeing a huge surge in coronavirus infections. China has criticized the testing requirement, saying it's unscientific. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said it was asking for tests because Chinese authorities were not sharing full data on the extent of COVID infections in China or the full genetic sequencing of the variants spreading. That has led the U.S. and other countries to fear that new variants could be emerging in China and then brought into other countries. So far, China says it has discovered no new variants, and the variants they say are circulating in China had already been discovered infecting people in the U.S. and Europe last year. Emily Fang, NPR News. The man who plotted a notorious college admissions cheating scheme has been sentenced to three and a half years in federal prison. From member station GBH, Kirk Carapeza reports Rick Singer has been fined more than $10 million. In court, the 62-year-old former admissions consultant admitted his moral compass was warped, but cited his cooperation, leading to dozens of convictions of wealthy parents who funneled millions of dollars through Singer to bribe coaches and administrators into getting their kids admitted to selective colleges. The conduct in this case was something out of a Hollywood movie. Speaking to reporters, U.S. Attorney Rachel Rollins said it was a tough case because the person most culpable was the one cooperating. Had we chosen not to use Rick Singer, honestly, this office might have charged 10 people. Rollins said Singer's sentencing should serve as a warning to those considering similar schemes. For NPR News, I'm Kirk Carapeza in Boston. You're listening to NPR News.
From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. It's a historic day in Massachusetts. Maura Healey will be sworn in as governor in a few hours. She's the first woman elected to the job in Massachusetts and the first openly lesbian governor elected in any state in the country. The governor-elect says she's grateful and excited for her new job. She says her inaugural speech will address the opportunities and challenges ahead. It's a spirit of hope, of optimism, of resolve and and resoluteness, of something that Massachusetts and the people of Massachusetts have always been proud of. Um, There's a reason we were first on so many fronts, and I think that this is a time when we can step up, come together, and really, and really move this state forward. Kim Driscoll will be sworn in as lieutenant governor. We'll have live coverage of today's ceremonies beginning with Radio Boston at 11 a.m. While he's still technically governor until noon today, Charlie Baker left his state house office for the last time yesterday. WBR Steve Brown was there as Baker took the ceremonial lone walk. Baker and his lieutenant governor Karen Polito took the better part of an hour to walk the relatively short distance from their third floor office through the state house to the sidewalk on Beacon Street. They, along with their spouses, greeted supporters and aides along the way, often posing for selfies. When he paused on the granite steps of the Statehouse, Baker was given a 19 cannon gun salute that echoed all across Boston Common. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Uh, The new sheriff in Barnstable County is scaling back her department's relationship with the federal immigration officials. Sheriff Donna Buckley is undoing an agreement that allowed deputies to arrest people wanted on immigration warrants. That type of work does not fall under her office's official purview. Buckley campaigned on ending the county's collaboration with the feds. The state is looking for other ways to fund the replacement of the Cape Cod bridges. That comes after an application for nearly $2 billion in federal grants was denied. Another application for federal project funds was denied last September. The Bourne and Sagamore bridges are owned by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. State officials say it's the federal government's responsibility to replace them. It's 706. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. The Bruins begin a three-game California road trip tonight as they visit the Los Angeles Kings. The Celtics will be in Dallas to play the Mavericks. And in your forecast, some fog and drizzle this morning around Boston. There could also be some freezing rain and icing today. Otherwise, it'll be cloudy with a high around 40. More rain and freezing rain possible overnight with a low in the 30s. Snow tomorrow. We could get about an inch in Boston, two to three inches in Worcester. It'll be in the mid-30s. It should be dry for the weekend. It's 44 degrees in Boston at 7.07. WBUR supporters include Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skeep in Washington. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. A historic stalemate in the U.S. House is headed into its third day as Republicans failed again to elect a speaker. House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy started Wednesday hopeful that he would have the speaker's gavel by day's end. We could go through every name in the conference and be at the end of the day and we'll be able to get there. 
But if McCarthy does get there at the end of the day, as the expression goes, that day was not going to be Wednesday. Not only did he fall short three more times as some of his fellow Republicans voted against him, his party barely had enough votes to adjourn last night. NPR's congressional correspondent Claudio Grisales joins us this morning. So clearly uh, both sides are dug in here, and that means business is not getting done. Will we see a repeat today? It's possible. For example, we saw the 20 conservative Republicans voting against Leader McCarthy hold firm for a second day in a row, much more than the four he can afford to lose for a speakership bid. But we did see some small signs of progress last night. After McCarthy lost that sixth round of ballots, he met with his opponents to try to offer up new concessions. And as he was leaving that meeting, he sounded a note of optimism again. I think it's probably best... Um, let people work through some more. I, th I think uh, I don't think voting tonight does any difference, but I think voting in the future will. Soon after, Republicans were able to win a motion to adjourn for the night, but only by two votes. Another reminder of the razor thin margins in the House. Yeah. What's the plan for today? The chamber is once again set to convene at noon today for more votes, but Republicans were still hoping to reach a deal for McCarthy in the interim. But just as we mentioned yesterday, there's still plenty of division and little room for error. McCarthy can only lose a handful of members in his conference to win the speakership. And we saw another sign that his opposition could grow yesterday. In addition to the 20 defectors, a new Republican flipped on him. Indiana Representative Victoria Sparts voted present, depriving McCarthy of yet another vote in his favor. She tweeted that Republicans needed time to deliberate further until they have enough votes to elect a speaker and, quote, stop wasting everyone's time. So what could McCarthy do to get over this hump? McCarthy has made a lot of concessions to his opponents already, including offering up an option for only five members to move to remove him as speaker, something that would require a much higher threshold normally. And last night, McCarthy's super PAC reached a deal with an influential group, the Club for Growth, in support of his bid. And that was to back off spending in certain, quote, safe GOP districts to support a particular candidate, addressing one more demand from these conservatives. One of McCarthy's supporters, Nebraska Representative Don Bacon, who's entertained working with Democrats to elect a unity speaker, said McCarthy just needs more time to reach a deal with his opponents. I believe that there would be folks on the other side of the aisle that will make a deal with us when it comes to working on committees and things like that. But we don't want to go down this path too far. This is about Kevin McCarthy right now. Give him every opportunity to win. So if there isn't a light at the end of the tunnel deal waiting, how long could this last? That's a big question looming over the chamber. Democrats have warned their members they should be prepared to even stay through the weekend. But again, we should note this is an urgent concern. Much of the business of the House is on hold. Members are not getting sworn in. They cannot address a request from their constituents. They cannot form committees or hold official meetings or access intel briefings. In other words, nothing gets done until this gets done. NPR's Claudio Grisales, thanks a lot. Thank you much. All right, let's dig into what's behind the gridlock on electing a Speaker of the House. We've invited Frank Lunson to describe. He's a GOP pollster, communications strategist, and a longtime friend of Kevin McCarthy's. All right, Frank, uh, each vote, almost the same outcome, and Kevin McCarthy remains determined. It's uh, starting to feel like the Kevin Costner film Tin Cup, where Kevin Costner keeps trying to hit the ball onto the green, but keeps hitting into the water instead. So what are the chances that Kevin McCarthy hits the green and becomes Speaker of the House? Uh, I think it's pretty good. And I think it's pretty good because of the attributes that Kevin has shown in the time. I've known him for almost three decades. 
and everyone who knows him, everyone, remarks that he's one of the nicest people they've ever met, that he's kind, that he listens and learns, that he knows how to lead. But really what matters most right now in Washington is patience and persistence. And I realize that everyone's asking the question, when is this gonna end? For most people, this seems like a drama. But the truth is that this is important for democracy. It's important for how our government functions. And it's one of the reasons why so many people have lost faith and confidence in government. Important in though, the media. but is it damaging, Frank, to the Republican Party to have this play out the way it has? I, I, I respect those who are trying to change the system. They've been frustrated. They feel like their voice isn't heard, even though they're elected to Congress. I think that there is a better way to do this, but I understand it as a pollster and a communication analyst. I get that frustration. The key now is to find a consensus within the Republican Party, and the Republican Party is broad. It's not narrow-minded. It's not a single point of view. There are many different points of view, and that makes it a little harder to govern. But in the end, that's what democracy is all about. But will, okay, so in the end, you said this democracy is, it, that's what it's all about. But is there a path forward then for Kevin McCarthy right now, considering that I don't think anyone expected it to last as long as it has? Well, it, and that's whoever didn't expect it really didn't understand the, the points of view and the personalities involved, either Kevin's or those who have held him up up to this point. I'm familiar with the discussions. I'm familiar with the, with the uh, it, what probably seems like arcane debate about rules to most people. But in the end, you've got individuals that are desperate to end ways for Washington spending. You've got people who are desperate to have some sort of control at the border, who are desperate to ensure that voices are heard and, and we end woke and all these different policies. And they're frustrated that over the last two years, these things haven't happened. And they're, they're upset with Kevin McCarthy when they should be upset with the Democratic leadership and Joe Biden. I get that. And I believe over the last 24 hours, they realize it too, that they've been using Kevin as, their, as the attention when really they should be blaming somebody else. But how much more does Kevin McCarthy have to compromise? I mean, he seemingly has compromised maybe more than he wanted to or expected to. I mean, how much more room is there to compromise? Well, you have to work together. In the end, it's a very narrow majority, more narrow than they would have wished, more narrow than they were expecting. But they don't have a choice. Either they work together side by side to get the job done, I think it was Ben Franklin who says, either we all hang together or we will most certainly all hang separately. And what happens over the next 48 hours does determine, you are correct, it does determine the future of the Republican Party in the House. But I'd like to focus on something even bigger, which is it determines the functioning capability of Congress moving forward. And that is the real issue we should be focused on. Well, moving forward, then, if it's not Kevin McCarthy, who would it be? There's no, there's no one else who has the support of so many members of Congress, not even close. That like Kevin has the ability- But he doesn't have enough. Uh, that's, to the, reach. That's, that's the problem. I mean, he, he has a lot of support, but not quite enough. Well, but that's what you have when you have four, I mean, you have a four seat majority. I mean, these, these are the facts and, and people speak breathlessly about that, but you have to find a way to work together. And there is no one 
in the House Republican Conference who has more relationships with yeah. more organizations, with more issue groups than Kevin McCarthy. That's GOP and that's pollster because Frank Luntz. Frank, thank you very much. Sorry, I have to leave it right there. Frank Luntz, thanks a lot. Thank you. Appreciate it. We have an update this morning on the condition of Buffalo Bills player DeMar Hamlin, who you may recall suffered cardiac arrest during a televised NFL game this week. The Bills say that Hamlin is showing signs of improvement, although he remains hospitalized in critical condition. Many people are praising the medical personnel who treated him in the moments after he collapsed. Here's NPR's Tom Goldman. They were there, kneeling over DeMar Hamlin, even before ESPN broadcasters could identify him as the player lying motionless on the field. Tell exactly who that is. Maybe Hamlin. The first of the first responders were from the Bills sideline. When a player's injured, trainers and doctors from the player's team generally are the first to reach the athlete, says Dr. Alan Sills, the NFL's chief medical officer. If they get out on the field and they sense that this is a significant emergency, then they will give a hand signal in addition to the radio signal. It's basically an all call, meaning everyone come. Monday, everyone did, including a rarely needed code leader. Meaning if there is a cardiac arrest, who's going to lead? Who's going to be the captain of the ship in that moment to make determinations, decisions about various aspects of the resuscitation? The choreography of emergency response is locked in before every NFL game from preseason to the Super Bowl. The so-called 60-minute meeting happens an hour before kickoff where all the medical personnel get together and go through the highlights of an emergency action plan. The quest to improve the plan led the NFL to European football. After Danish soccer star Christian Eriksen suffered cardiac arrest in a 2021 match, Dr. Jim Ellis, the NFL's director of emergency preparedness talked to Danish doctors about Ericsson's successful treatment on the field. It reinforced to Ellis the importance of clearly stating who's in charge. In a cardiac arrest situation, you do not want any kind of question around who's doing what and any uncertainty. So we wanted to make it very, very clear in our 60-minute meetings this year, you need to designate who that code leader would be. So a minor tweak, but an important one in our mind. A critical one for DeMar Hamlin, whose heartbeat was restored on the field. NFL executive Troy Vincent, still emotionally raw from Monday's incident, made note of that medical success on a conference call yesterday. That evening was outstanding. You gave our brother DeMar another day to live, another chance to fight. According to the Bills, Hamlin's expected to remain under intensive care as the hospital's medical team continues to monitor and treat him. Tom Goldman, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we look at the challenges and opportunities facing Moore Healy as she's sworn in as Massachusetts governor today. It's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. I'm Deepa Fernandez. A man wrongly deported 20 years ago is finally allowed to rejoin his family back in the United States. Gideon Bayana is home after a long legal battle. Just trying to think of how I'm going to put my life together again after so many years. That's next time, here and now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
where River Farm in Hingham is celebrating the new year on Saturday with a bonfire gathering. And Smith White oversees the farm for the trustees. She says the event was first created during the pandemic to give people a way to have fun outdoors in a safe setting. We create this enormous bonfire up at the top of the hill. We have a food truck and a beer truck, and we'll have hot chocolate, and our farm store will be open. And it's just a great way for families to get together outside in the dark, having fun, doing something special to celebrate the new year. Those who want to attend should register through the trustees' website. Proceeds go directly to supporting the farm's operations. And we have another sloppy day today. Fog, clouds, and rain this morning may give way to freezing rain at times. We'll have a high in the mid-40s. Tonight, overcast skies with a low in the mid-30s. More drizzle or freezing rain possible overnight. And on Friday, snow. We might get about an inch around Boston. Worcester might get two or three inches. The high will be in the mid-30s. Right now, it's 44 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. In just a few hours, Maura Healy will take the oath of office to become governor of Massachusetts. She'll be sworn in at the State House and will celebrate this evening at TD Garden. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports on some of the biggest opportunities and challenges awaiting Healy as she prepares to take over the state's corner office. Healy will celebrate her inauguration this evening on the home court of the Boston Celtics to make a point. She's a former professional basketball player who never let her small stature prevent her from making big plays. Before the holiday, the former point guard told WBUR that her inauguration will stress the importance of teamwork, optimism, and urgency. I think Massachusetts should continue to lead. We're a state that punches above its weight. And in this time, particularly nationally, I want us to be out there, to be leading. Healy will start her term as governor with a lot of wind at her back. Democrats united behind her after State Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz dropped out of the primary last summer, and Healy faced only token opposition from Republican Jeff Deal in November. She's popular across Massachusetts, having now won three statewide elections, including two as attorney general. According to political consultant Susan Tracy, that means Healy can make a fast start. Mara has been in a position running, a, you know, one of the constitutional offices for the last eight years. So I think I think her ability to come in without a lot of learning curve and without a need to build relationships with people is really helpful to her. Healy will also take over a state government flush with cash, thanks in part to billions in federal stimulus money. Tracy says that represents both a fortunate circumstance and a test of her priorities. I remember one time someone saying to me, if you have a lot of money in government, 
The issue is really, how do you spend it? You're almost under more pressure when you have resources than when you don't. Tracy says a big early test for Healy will be her first proposed budget, which will clarify many of her priorities. Under Healy, Democrats will have control of state government, with supermajorities in the House and Senate. And while that represents a big opportunity for Healy, Republican State Senator Patrick O'Connor says it's also a challenge. O'Connor says outgoing Republican Governor Charlie Baker provided balance to Beacon Hill Democrats, and he was receptive to moderate voices across the state. O'Connor is hopeful that Healy will continue to do the same. It's just more challenging off the, the basis of politics, having a Democratic leader of the House, a Democratic leader of the Senate, and then a Democratic leader of our executive to accomplish that, which I would say is movement towards the middle that we've been able to experience under Governor Baker. Governor Baker was a great governor. I appreciate his leadership. Healy's aware that among her challenges, she's succeeding one of the most popular governors in the country. And she says there are aspects of Baker's approach that she'll embrace. One thing I always appreciate about his leadership was his ability to listen to a range of folks and then ultimately have to make a decision. During her campaign, Healy promised a lot. More housing, a green technology corridor, and lower taxes while making life more affordable in Massachusetts. Delivering on all that would be a challenge for any governor. Healy will also feel pressure from progressives in her own party to do even more. We're always going to be pushing for more change, and I expect that'll happen. Jamie Eldridge, a state senator from Acton, is a leading progressive in the legislature. He says Healy's biggest challenge will be to address widespread income and racial inequality across Massachusetts. One recent study from the Boston Foundation found that almost a quarter of Latinos and a fifth of blacks in the state live in poverty. Despite all the progress we make in so many other areas, that gap is continuing to grow. And that is the big issue that Governor-elect Healy should tackle. Eldridge says he's confident that Healy will, based on her progressive record as attorney general. Healy says as governor, she'll be committed to tackling racial disparities across the board in education, health care, transportation, and especially housing. Which has always been historically a way to create wealth. It's one of the many reasons I want to drive home ownership around the state, supporting programs for first-time buyers, supporting programs to help Black and Latino families with down payments. Another challenge awaiting Healy is one that bedeviled Charlie Baker, the MBTA. A scathing federal report found the T, which has been plagued by chronic delays and deadly accidents, falls badly short on safety, staffing, planning, and maintenance. Healy says her top priority is to address a shortage of workers at the T. But as to when the system will finally be running smoothly? How long will that take? I don't know. What I can promise you is that we will do everything we can to make sure that we are supporting with the investments, with the leadership, to get it done as quickly as possible. Beyond the nuts and bolts of everyday governing, Healy will also make history. She'll be the state's first elected female governor, the first openly gay governor, and will lead the first all-female governing team with Kim Driscoll. Healy embraces that role and often talks about the importance of diversity in government. Political strategist Susan Tracy agrees, but says being first can also be a burden. Because when you are a first, what people look for is your mistakes and your, see, they can't do it. They're not ready for it. And there is a higher bar for firsts. Tracy says the job of governor is hard enough without the added pressure of being a first 
as she prepares to take office later today. Maura Healy says she's ready for all the challenges. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. We'll have live coverage of today's inauguration beginning with Radio Boston at 11 this morning. We'll also have a complete wrap-up on All Things Considered this afternoon beginning at 4. And you can always stay on top of the news at WBUR.org and with the WBUR mobile app. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Democrat Katie Hobbs is sworn in today as Arizona's governor, setting up a confrontation with the state's Republican majority legislature. And there continue to be vulnerabilities in different regions or different areas and from different types of threats. Recent attacks on electrical substations in several states have emphasized their vulnerability to terrorism. Now there are questions about the overall safety and security of America's power grid. It's 729. Supreme Court overturned decades of abortion rights precedent last year, a decision that is emboldening conservative lawmakers at the state level. Conservative states are not going to let up on the gas. I'm Mary Louise Kelly, a look at anti-abortion laws under consideration across the country this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. After multiple votes over two days on Capitol Hill, lawmakers in the House have yet to elect a speaker. Republican Kevin McCarthy of California has come up short in six separate votes. A group of conservative lawmakers continues to oppose McCarthy's nomination. President Biden calls the stalemate a little embarrassing. Here's former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. It's quite sad. But let's be hopeful that in the, the next day or so, as they find their, their purpose and their unity, they understand why they are here. A seventh vote for House Speaker is expected this afternoon. Republicans regained control of the House as a result of the November midterm elections. The Federal Reserve is suggesting it plans to raise interest rates more aggressively this year than previously forecast. That's according to minutes from the Fed's latest policy meeting. The Fed cites continued strong hiring in the U.S., which it says could keep inflation elevated in the economy. Potential flooding and mudslides remain a concern in California, where heavy rains continue to fall over much of the state. Governor Gavin Newsom has declared a state of emergency. Some people have been evacuated from coastal areas as a precaution. The National Weather Service says the San Francisco area could receive six inches of rain from these latest storms. This is NPR News. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi.
Maura Healy will be sworn in as governor of Massachusetts in a few hours. She'll be only the second woman to serve in the post, and she's the first woman elected governor in the state. Healy will be sworn in by Senate President Karen Spilka, and Spilka says she's looking forward to this historic moment. I cannot let this moment go by without recognizing the generations of women who came before us, who never stopped hoping for or working toward this very day. Kim Driscoll will become lieutenant governor today. Healy and Driscoll are the first female pair elected governor and lieutenant governor in any state. Also, Andrea Campbell will become the first black woman to serve as the state's attorney general. WBUR will have live coverage of today's inauguration. Our coverage begins at 11 this morning with Radio Boston. You can also follow the story today on WBUR.org and on the WBUR mobile app. Healy is filling more spots in her cabinet leading up to her inauguration. She's named Mary Beckman as Acting Secretary of Health and Human Services. Beckman will be in that role until Healy finds a permanent replacement. Beckman worked with Healy in the AG's office as Chief of the Health Care and Fair Competition Bureau. The current secretary, Mary Lou Sutters, formally leaves the job today. Cambridge Police and the Middlesex DA's office are investigating a fatal police shooting a fatal shooting by police. Officers say they responded yesterday to reports a man had jumped out of an apartment window holding a large knife. After a chase, police say the man rushed them with the knife. Officers say they fired a less-than-lethal weapon at him first. When that didn't stop him, they say an officer shot and killed him. The victim was identified as 20-year-old Saeed Faisal. The officer's name has not been released. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Rhodes Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. Red Sox third baseman Raphael Devers will be sticking around for a while. Multiple reports say he's signed an 11-year, $331 million contract with the team. It's the largest contract in Red Sox history. Tonight, the Celtics will visit the Dallas Mavericks. The Bruins are on the road to skate with the L.A. Kings. And in your forecast, showers may turn to freezing rain at points today, and we'll have some areas of fog. When it's not raining, it'll be cloudy with temperatures in the low 40s. Those fall to the mid-30s tonight, and there may be more rain and freezing rain overnight. Tomorrow, we end the week with a good chance of snow. The Boston area might get as much as an inch. Around Worcester, there might be as much as three inches. It'll be in the mid-30s. Right now, it's 44 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering, and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. The U.S. power grid is part of the country's critical infrastructure. Recent attacks on electrical substations in several states have raised security concerns. So Rob Schmidt spoke with Richard Morose, a senior advisor at Protect Our Power, about the grid's vulnerabilities. 
On the whole, I'd say that the grid is fairly secure, but there are going to be vulnerabilities for a variety of reasons. And we're seeing that from the most recent physical attacks where some of the substations were shot at by small arms, but we also have other vulnerabilities that include cybersecurity or severe weather. So the grid is in fairly good shape. Investments have been made, but there continue to be vulnerabilities in different regions or different areas and from different types of threats. So in 2014, a leaked report indicated that the U.S. had over 55,000 transformers nationwide. However, an attack on only nine could cripple the power grid across the country. That sounds incredible. And I'm wondering if the situation has changed since 2014 and it's now more difficult to do that. Well, first, that report that you're referring to does focus on a handful of critical facilities that if they were disrupted for the long term, we would probably lose large segments of the grid throughout the country. There are high impact targets, several critical facilities, which probably couldn't get rebuilt very quickly. And how easy would it be for someone or a group to knock out one of those high impact facilities? Well, knocking out those high impact facilities is probably harder than everyone would think. Those are being protected. There have been protective measures. They've been identified. And the industry, as well as policymakers and regulators, need to be thinking about the cascading events where there could be multiple types of threats, storms, plus uh, even a, an intentional act that could bring those down. So we need to be continuing to look at these vulnerabilities and try to protect them, even if there are multiple threats to those kinds of critical facilities. Oftentimes, you know, when we talk about the grid, we, we think about massive power stations, coal-fired, uh, natural gas, et cetera. But obviously, the United States is moving closer to more renewable energy sources. And I'm wondering, you know, how do these sources potentially increase the grid reliability and security? Well, at one level, that movement towards distributed resources, whether it's solar or other small generation sources that are distributed away from those big facilities we just talked about actually in one way support the security of the grid. They make it less likely that one critical facility will be disrupted and then a large region goes down. But on the other side of that coin is the fact that much of this new distributed energy resource is digitized. So with the digitization of a lot of this equipment, that increases the vulnerability on things like cybersecurity. So that's why there needs to be this all hazards approach to whether it's the electric or rest of our critical infrastructure, and particularly this increased digitization. Should there be a nationwide outage, which I think is a big if, how easy is it to restart the grid? First, I think you're right. It's a big if. That's a highly unlikely event. But the issue of black start, that is starting the electric grid up from a total blackout is not as easy as one might imagine. And it has to be done in a certain manner to make sure that the power can be increased from one level to another. That's Richard Morose. He's the former president of the New Jersey Board of Public Utilities and a senior advisor at Protect Our Power. Thanks, Richard. Thank you. Katie Hobbs is formally sworn in as Arizona's new governor today. Last fall, the Democrat defeated a Republican backed by former President Trump. Democrats won most other statewide seats, a sign of a red state that now feels purple. Yet Republicans kept their majority in the state legislature, and some would like to pull their state further right. 
From member station KJZZ, Ben Giles reports. Hi, Kathleen Marie Hobbs. I'm Kathleen Marie Hobbs. You solemnly swear. Solemnly swear. Hobbs actually took the oath of office Monday, ahead of today's formal ceremony for all statewide elected officials. The former Secretary of State won at a time when Arizona elections were under attack by Republicans, both those in office and those running against her. Shortly after she was declared the winner, Hobbs said she's not going to tolerate election bills pushed by far-right conspiracy theorists, some of whom are leaders in the new state Senate. I'm not going to coddle somebody who is continuing to spread falsehoods about our election systems or whatever else, even if they're in the majority. On the campaign trail, Hobbs questioned Arizona's existing border policies, like former Governor Doug Ducey's shipping container wall and the use of a controversial border strike force. That left one GOP senator saying he felt as though Hobbs was punching Republicans in the face. One of the first things Hobbs did upon taking office was issue an executive order directing state agencies to adopt new anti-discrimination policies. That has the state's religious conservatives fuming. But Democratic lawmakers like Rebecca Rios, who spent the last two years trying to legislate while Republicans controlled the state house and governor's chair, welcome Hobbs' election. We are looking at folks that have been able to do and pass anything they want because they had full control and full power. Rios, who's leaving the legislature after a long career in politics, says she isn't expecting miracles either. <sighs> it is going to be a long session. Republicans held their one-vote majorities in the state House and Senate, but the GOP majority this year promises to be more conservative than the last session. Republican Kirk Adams served in the Arizona House in the 2000s. The last time a Democrat, Janet Napolitano, was in the governor's office. He says divided government is difficult. I really think these first 90 days of the legislative session are going to be about testing the resolve of the other side. Democrat Rebecca Rios says that to succeed as governor, Hobbs will have to strike a centrist path, much like Arizona's two U.S. senators, Democrat Mark Kelly and independent Kirsten Sinema. Right down the middle is where she needs to be, and I think that's where she will be. And I think that she has appointed people around her that will provide those guardrails and make sure that that remains her focus. Republican Adams says Hobbs has already hinted at that centrist tone when it comes to issues like immigration and border security. On the campaign trail, Hobbs criticized the Biden administration for inaction at the border. That is the middle ground in Arizona. Hobbs said in November that she hopes her election and wins by Democrats in other high-level offices signal to at least some Republicans that Arizona is changing. But there are few indications that the Republicans Arizonans sent to the statehouse this year are willing to meet her in the middle. Hobbs may instead end up setting a record for the number of vetoes. For NPR News, I'm Ben Giles in Phoenix. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. In case you haven't heard, Massachusetts is also swearing in its new governor today. Our coverage of the inauguration of Maura Healy begins this morning at 11 with Radio Boston. Coming up next on Morning Edition, cricket is popular worldwide, but not so much in the U.S. That may change when a new U.S. pro cricket league starts play later this year. And in our next hour, President Biden and Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell made a rare appearance 
conference together yesterday to call for bipartisanship. And in your forecast, fog and showers today, and the showers may turn to freezing rain at some points. We'll have temperatures in the low 40s. Tonight, mid-30s, we may see more freezing rain overnight. Friday, snow, probably about an inch around Boston. Worcester may see 2 to 3 inches. Temperatures will be in the mid-30s. It's 44 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Understanding that now, more than ever, we need the ocean, and the ocean needs us. Start the new year by joining a team dedicated to advancing ocean science and technology for the global good. Explore exciting career opportunities in many fields at whoi.edu team. Now in business news, the Massachusetts Biotechnology Council is naming naming Kendall Berlin O'Connell as its new CEO and president. She was previously the Life Science Group's president and COO, and she's been with, with the organization for over a decade. Vermont's maple syrup industry is getting into a sticky situation. Climate change is forcing sugar makers to tap trees earlier each year. Usually, maple sugaring season begins in late winter, but record warmth over the past week is causing an early sap run. Allison Hope is with the Vermont Maple Sugar Makers Association. She says early season sap usually has lower sugar content. Which means that it takes more sap to make a gallon of syrup. So it's more work to use that sap, but for folks who want to do it, certainly they can make some good syrup out of it and then keep on trucking. State data shows Vermont's maple syrup industry contributes more than $300 million to the state's economy. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. Major League Cricket kicks off in the U.S. this year. Competition starts in July with six teams, including one from San Francisco. And as KQED's Holly J. McDeed reports, many supporters have ties to countries in South Asia and have long been promoting the sport. At a recent cricket tournament in Pleasanton, California, it feels like the World Series of Little League Baseball. And that's my son going in. Good luck, buddy. Ishan, do your thing. That's Vic Vedir. His son, Ishan, plays for the San Ramon Cricket Association, known as SRCA. Ishan goes into bat. SRCA! He scores, running between two sets of wooden stumps. Whoa, that's another four! Thanks to years of advocacy from members of the Bay Area South Asian community, young players who dream of cricket can play on cricket fields, train in local academies, and join youth leagues. Schools also offer cricket in PE. The United States was a cricket nation a long, long time ago. So this isn't a new thing. It's just a resurgence. 
Michael Narain is a sports management professor at Brock University in Canada. He says in the 1700s, the British brought cricket to North American colonies. But over time, interest faded in the U.S. and eventually gave way to the rise of baseball. Cricket expanded to other colonies of the British Empire, from Australia to South Africa to India, where the sport really took off. And that's out. Yes, it's all over this time. In 1983, the Indian cricket team beat the West Indies in London and became world champions on their former colonizers' land. As cricket became even more popular in India, immigrants from South Asian countries brought their cricket fandom to the U.S., with the Bay Area being one of the sport's biggest hubs. When you've got a place like Silicon Valley, you've got the tech industry, it is a breeding ground for the best and brightest talent from around the world, many of which, particularly in the tech sector, happen to come from India. Several cricket players from the Bay Area are on U.S. national teams. High school junior Anika Kalan is one of them. I'm kind of referred to as like cricket girl in school now. Anika's been playing cricket since she was nine years old. Her parents are both from India, and she says her dad got her into the sport. So my dad actually built some cages in our backyard, so I spent a lot of my time there practicing with him. In my off time, I would think about cricket, and I would just want to do everything I can to get better at it. Anika's mom is Manjula Kolan. She was skeptical at first that a sport like cricket could lead somewhere for a young American athlete. To pick it up as a sport, compromising your school and other activities, I was the most the furious enemy I, my husband ever had in those times. But then her daughter made the U.S. national team. The sky was the limit for them, and I had no other option than to you know, open up my doors. <laughs> This month, her daughter will compete in South Africa in the International Cricket Council's Under-19 Women's World Cup. And if a proposed cricket stadium gets built in California, she may someday play for fans close to home. For NPR News, I'm Holly J. McDeed. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Another hour of Morning Edition is coming up. And later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview of the show. Good morning, Tiziana. It's so nice to see you. Morning Edition at this time was just not the same without you. Oh, Rupa, thank you so much. It's great to be back here starting the day with you. We're standing here in Studio 2 where the setup is for uh, later this morning. Radio Boston is going to be anchoring the station's live coverage of a pretty historic inauguration today when Maura Healy is signed in as the 73rd governor. Oh, you don't say. I hadn't heard about that. Yeah, you hadn't heard about that at all, right? Nobody's talking about it. Um, First woman elected to the position, one of two openly lesbian governors that are first elected around the country. We actually have the first woman to ever serve in the position, Jane Swift, Mm -hmm. uh, with us. She ascended to the role when Paul Cellucci became ambassador to Canada. Steve Brown's at the Statehound. Anthony Brooks will be with us. We have a number of other analysts. It's a big day, and it marks just, beyond the first, a big change here in the Commonwealth, I mean, it's been eight years with Charlie Baker. So 
today's the day and we're going to bring it all. And then my understanding is all things considered will bring more this afternoon. Yeah, that's what I hear too. Yeah. All right. Have a good time. I think it's going to be fun, Rupa. Of I'm course. Yes, sense. of course. All right. Thank you. <laughs> that's Radio Boston today at 11. It's 7.51. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource. Eversource knows the role energy plays in life for you and your family. And because of that understanding, in times like these, they offer plans that can help this winter. To see if you qualify, you can visit Eversource.com. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with the Morning Edition. Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. And I'm Lisa Mullins at WBUR. You know, my favorite car ever was my parents' Chevrolet Impala. My favorite all-time car was a little red Mini. My parents' red VW Bug painted white to make it look bigger. I don't know where that car is today, but I do know that an old car can be really valuable. Favorite or not, your current car can be turned into All Things Considered. It can be turned into Morning Edition. Go to WBUR.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The CDC recently issued an advisory about a surge in strep throat in kids ages 5 to 15. Grown-ups can get this too. Our colleague Leila Fadl had it over the holidays. It's been more complicated to detect lately because it is just one of several respiratory illnesses. So we called Dr. Afif Hassan, who's with the American Lung Association and a pediatrician with Kaiser Permanente in Orange County, California. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on the program, Steve. I guess we should define it. What is strep throat? Strep throat is actually a bacterial infection with the streptococcus bacteria that basically infects the throat, the tonsils, the back of the throat. Okay, so what does it feel like? What are the symptoms that I would get if I had strep? Well, strep throat actually makes up about 20 to 30% of sore throats in children, uh, 5 to 15% of sore throats in adults. And what most patients feel is the classic sore throat with a fever, but you can also get nausea, vomiting, stomach aches, and even a rash. That doesn't sound very pleasant. I would imagine that I've had this over the years at some point without getting a formal diagnosis. That can certainly happen. And given the current environment where we have a lot of viruses that are infecting children as well as adults, we are having an issue with trying to differentiate what is strep and what is a viral illness. How can you tell? Sometimes it's very difficult to tell unless we actually do testing. I become more suspicious that it might be strep throat if someone comes in with a sore throat, a fever, and does not have a runny nose or cough, doesn't have red eyes that you would see with a virus. And it's just the standalone symptoms of just sore throat fever, maybe with some stomach pain and nausea. Then I become much more suspicious for strep throat. But the truth is, even with the other viral symptoms, it is also possible that there could be an accompanying strep throat with viruses. Oh, multiple things at once. Does strep spread the same way that COVID and other things do through the air? It is spread person to person, and it can sometimes be spread through droplets if someone coughs. Why do you think there's an increase now? There's a number of reasons. The first one is the fact that we are seeing a prevalence of viruses together that everyone's heard of. Everyone's heard, you know, flu is here. We have COVID, of course, that's been lingering for quite a while, as well as other respiratory viruses. And those viruses actually do weaken the body's natural defenses and does make it easier for a bacteria like strep to cause an infection. Oh, wait a minute. If I've already had one of those other things, I may be more vulnerable to strep now? 
That is correct. It may be that there's a higher likelihood of a secondary bacterial infection because those viruses do reduce the natural defenses of the body. I also had an experience over the course of a couple of years that I think a lot of people did at the beginning of the pandemic. I reduced my contact with other people. I wore masks a lot and I didn't get sick at all for anything for a couple of years, which was great. But did that lower my immunity and other people's immunities? Steve, I'm glad you brought that up. Yes, actually, that has been an issue. Everyone had the masks on and we started to reduce our natural immunity that we would get when we were exposed to viruses. So when we took off the masks and uh, we started going out and socializing more and being in crowds more, we became not only more susceptible, but also put ourselves in an easier situation to catch those viruses. What, if anything, should we do about this? First of all, everyone should wash their hands. That's always been uh, the most important preventative measure that any of us can take. We should always, if we are in large crowds, consider wearing a mask. Don't share food with other people. Eat healthy. Exercise. Those are the best preventative measures. And also make sure that you get your flu shot. Dr. Afif Al-Hassan with the American Lung Association. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for having me on. Wax cylinders with some of the most important sound recordings of the 20th century are now going to be housed in a public institution. That's thanks to an NPR story from last spring that was heard by the great-grandson of the New York Metropolitan Opera's former librarian, Lionel Mapleson. Here's NPR's Jennifer Vanasco. This recording probably doesn't sound like much. It's scratchy and hard to hear. But it's the Metropolitan Opera in New York City singing the finale to Verdi's Aida on January 31st, 1903. Bob Kozofsky is a librarian at the New York Library for the Performing Arts. He says this and the other Mapleson recordings are so important. It's because it recorded live performances at a time when people didn't think it was possible. Those live recordings were captured by Lionel Mapleson, he was using his Edison phonograph to capture music from the Opera House stage on fragile wax cylinders. The library had 124 in its collection. The Mapleson family had 16 more. And boy, the library wanted them. But they were patient. So there the cylinders sat under the recliner of Alfred Mapleson's mother on Long Island. Alfred Mapleson is the great-grandson of Lionel, who made the recordings. So my brother, who lives in Raleigh, North Carolina, came across the story, and he says, oh, did you see this? And also, he learned that technology had advanced enough that even the broken cylinders might be readable, and the intact ones would be less noisy. So he reached out to the library. It made him think that the cylinders might need to be stored more safely. That's Jessica Wood, a curator in the sound division. Both Bob and I just about fell out of our chairs with excitement. The best news we had gotten in 10 years. With the cylinders came about 50 of Lionel Mapleson's journals, really scrapbooks with drawings, newspaper clippings, and thoughts about living through important events, like the sinking of the Titanic or the 1906 San Francisco earthquake or the time... Arturo Toscanini and Puccini came to his hotel room because they decided that Act One of the opera Manon needed to be reorchestrated. But there's one more thing. Lionel Mapleson recorded hundreds of those wax cylinders. Most are missing. The librarians hope that maybe someone will hear this story and pull them out of their attic. Jennifer Vanasco, NPR News, New York. 
This is NPR News. Clouds give way to rain and maybe freezing rain at points today. Temperatures will be in the low 40s. Tonight, clouds in mid-30s with a chance of more rain and freezing rain. Tomorrow, snow. It's 42 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Handel and Haydn Society. Experience an evening of magic with Beethoven and Mozart. Tomorrow and Sunday at Symphony Hall. Tickets at handelandhaydn.org. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Maura Healey will be sworn in today as Massachusetts' new governor. She's the first woman and the first openly LGBTQ person elected to the job in state history. It's Thursday, January 5th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Republicans are still trying to elect a House Speaker after two days of voting. Meanwhile, Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell made a rare appearance with President Biden in Kentucky to call for bipartisanship. No matter who gets elected, Once it's all over, we ought to look for things we can agree on and try to do those. Also, California Governor Gavin Newsom has declared a state of emergency as another so-called atmospheric river drenches the state. And this hour... Thousands gather at the Vatican for today's funeral of Pope Benedict XVI. Clouds may give way to rain and freezing rain today. It'll be around 40. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. A stalemate in the U.S. House is headed into its third day as Republicans have again failed to elect a speaker. NPR's Claudia Grisales reports Republican leader Kevin McCarthy is still holding out hope he can overcome a group of hardline opponents within his party when the House reconvenes today. After GOP leader Kevin McCarthy lost a six-round of voting in his speakership bid, he met with his opponents behind closed doors to try to offer up new concessions. As he left, McCarthy sounded a new note of optimism. I think it's probably best let people work through some more. I, th- I, think, uh, I don't think voting tonight does any difference, but I think voting in the future will. Republicans later won a motion to adjourn for the night, but only by two votes, another reminder of the chamber's razor-thin margins. McCarthy has yet to overcome a deficit of at least 20 conservative Republicans who are voting against him. He can only afford to lose four if he hopes to be elected speaker. Claudia Grisales, NPR News, Washington. Until a speaker is elected, no business can be conducted in the House of Representatives, and none of the newly elected members can even be sworn into office. Yesterday, President Biden called the deadlock embarrassing. There was a historic moment at the Vatican today when a living pope presided at the funeral mass for his predecessor, who had retired from the job. NPR's Silvio Poggioli reports on the funeral for Benedict XVI. Italian officials say 50,000 people attended the outdoor mass in St. Peter's Square. In his homily, Francis mentioned Benedict by name only once, commending his spirit into God's hands. Benedict, may your joy be complete as you hear his voice now and forever. The Vatican had said the funeral would be simple and solemn, but the ritual closely resembled that for reigning popes. Pope Francis presided with 125 cardinals, hundreds of bishops, and thousands of priests. At the end of the funeral, Benedict was buried in a private ceremony in the crypt of St. Peter's Basilica alongside his predecessors. Silvio Poggioli, NPR News, Rome.
California is being pounded by another powerful Pacific storm. Exceptionally heavy rain is falling on areas that are waterlogged from storms that hit just a few days ago, and wind gusts are intense. Some reaching tropical storm strength. A toddler has been killed in Sonoma County. Occidental Volunteer Fire Department Chief Ron Lenardi says a massive redwood tree blew down on the child's home. When I first arrived on scene, a frantic father came out of the house holding the child. He was kind of covered in debris, and he said, my child's not breathing. Meanwhile, California officials have ordered evacuations in a high-risk coastal area. This is the same place where 23 people were killed in 2018 by mudslides. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Maura Healy will become governor of Massachusetts in just a few hours. She'll become the first woman elected to the job in Massachusetts and the first openly lesbian governor elected in the country. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports the new governor will then celebrate tonight at the Garden. Healy's team is calling tonight's event the Moving the Ball Forward inaugural celebration, which will include a performance by Grammy Award-winning artist Brandi Carlisle. It will take place on the home court of the Boston Celtics, a venue where Healy, who played pro basketball, feels right at home. Healy says her inauguration will stress the importance of teamwork, optimism, and urgency. I think Massachusetts should continue to lead. We're a state that punches above its weight. And in this time, particularly nationally, I want us to be out there, to be leading. Tonight's inaugural celebration will follow Healy's swearing in at the State House later today. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. We'll have live coverage of today's inauguration. It begins at 11 a.m. with Radio Boston and Tiziana Deering. Then join us this afternoon for a recap on All Things Considered beginning at 4. You can also stay on top of things by visiting WBUR.org or listening on the WBUR mobile app. Kim Driscoll will be sworn in as lieutenant governor today. She formally stepped down from her old job as mayor of Salem yesterday. Longtime city councilor Robert McCarthy is now Salem's acting mayor. A special election to officially replace Driscoll is scheduled for the spring. Several candidates have already expressed interest in the job. The MBTA is concerned about the quality of new subway cars being added to its fleet. The new cars are being built at a factory in Springfield. A letter sent last month by T Leadership criticizes the rail car maker CRRC over shoddy wiring and other workmanship issues. A T spokesman says the company has promised to address the issues. The T recently pulled new Orange Line trains from service because of an electrical problem. Living in New England means dealing with snow. We haven't had all that much so far this year, although we could see some freezing rain today and a little snow tomorrow. The Federal Emergency Management Agency is giving New Englanders advice on how to keep themselves safe during extreme weather. WBWAR's Samantha Kutsia has more. FEMA says it's important to make sure all aspects of your home are well prepared for winter. That means checking insulation and keeping supplies like food and batteries on hand. Lori Ehrlich is the regional administrator for New England. She also notes that during a storm, that run to Dunkin' Donuts isn't worth the risk. Do what you can to avoid going out in the first place, but if you absolutely have to go, just um, be prepared and make sure you bring you know, your phone, have your phone charged, and the emergency supplies that you might need if your car is, is stranded. Ehrlich says to keep a bag of sand or kitty litter in your car to help it out of the snow if it gets stuck. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Samantha Kutsia. It's 8.07. 
WBUR supporters include Heather Sturt-Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. The Bruins will be in Los Angeles tonight to skate with the Kings. The Celtics are also on the road. They'll play the Dallas Mavericks. Some showers and drizzle this morning around Boston. There could also be some freezing rain and icing today. Otherwise, it'll be cloudy with a high around 40. More rain and freezing rain possible overnight with a low in the 30s. Snow tomorrow. We could get about an inch in Boston, two to three inches in Worcester. It'll be in the mid-30s. This weekend, it should be dry. It's 42 degrees in Boston at 8.07. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Hurricane force winds and heavy rain downed trees and left more than 100,000 Northern Californians without power last night. The storm's origin, another atmospheric river. That's the technical term for a column of airborne moisture, like a river in the sky. Governor Gavin Newsom declared a state of emergency, and so did local officials in San Jose, Oakland, and elsewhere. San Francisco's Mayor London Breed spoke from the city's emergency operations center. The biggest issue for us in terms of addressing challenges around floods, which we've been doing all day, cleaning out store drains and and other issues, is making sure uh, that people are not caught in these various um, floods and other areas in a situation that requires rescue. Uh, We want to keep the public safe. Climate editor Kevin Stark from member station KQED is in San Francisco right in the middle of this. Uh, Kevin, where do things stand now? Yeah, well, the storm prompted evacuation warnings across the northern part of the state. It triggered landslides. It closed roads really all over the place. The winds were particularly strong or gusting up to 85 miles per hour in some parts of the Bay Area. One city issued a shelter-in-place order because of all the downed power lines. Rain was just really coming down in sheets. It was like a fire hose at its peak, you know, dropping more than an inch per hour in some places. A gas station roof actually collapsed south of San Francisco, and school districts across the region have canceled school. Now, remember, this storm is coming on the heels of another really bad atmospheric river that blanketed the region on New Year's Eve. Really, it's like the third significant storm system we've had since Christmas. Yeah, it has been wet in California. So what are the biggest things to worry about today? Well, the Weather Service is warning that flash flooding in a number of places around the northern part of the state. I'd say the region you know, is caught a little bit off guard on New Year's Eve. It was, it was worse than officials had anticipated, and the flooding in cities and from small creeks and streams was really bad. You know, restaurants flooded, major highways shut down, all of it. We saw a correction in advance of this storm. There was a lot of prep work and early warning, that kind of thing really across the region, and that's because the ground was so saturated that increases the chances of landslides, and emergency officials were were really worried about some of the bigger rivers flooding. Meteorologists are warning that the Russian River could flood in the North Bay area, for example, during this storm. And we've had a number of big wildfires in recent years in the Santa Cruz Mountains and Point Reyes down in Big Sur. These burn scars can wash out and create slides that are filled with rocks and mud and trees can really be quite dangerous. So Kevin, once the faucet or the hose gets turned off, I mean, what challenges is the region uh, facing? First, cleanup, you know, we're assessing how bad the damage is, trying to figure out how people can get the power back on, when that's gonna happen. The dollar figure for the damage from these winter storms continues to tick up. We don't know exactly how much yet. 
one city that's been hit hard is Santa Cruz. It's already estimating damages there, you know, up over $10 million. That's not a huge city. That's a signal that economic damage is going to be considerable. Meteorologists here sometimes talk about what they call the storm parade, which refers to us having, you know, a series of these atmospheric rivers back to back to back. That's really what's happening right now. We're looking at having another series of big storms this weekend and even into next week. That's climate editor Kevin Stark from member station KQED in San Francisco. Kevin, stay dry. Thanks so much. The Republican majority in the House of Representatives is preparing for a third day of trying to elect a speaker. Other politicians, including President Biden, were free to move elsewhere yesterday. NPR's Asma Khalid reports on Biden's visit to the site of an old bridge across the Ohio River into Kentucky. The president used the word embarrassing three times yesterday in public to describe the chaos in the House of Representatives. It's embarrassing for the country. But in a split-screen moment 500 miles from Washington in Covington, Kentucky, Biden was trying to give an example of how government ought to work. And frankly, he wasn't the only one. What's possible when we push partisanship aside? This is what bipartisanship in the United States of America should look like. It's Democrats and Republicans coming together. That was Kentucky's Democratic governor, Andy Beshear, Ohio's Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown, and Ohio's Republican governor, Mike DeWine. All these men were talking about the infrastructure law Congress passed in 2021, because that money is starting to flow to bridges like the one they were standing in front of. About $1.6 billion is going to improve the Brent Spence Bridge. It's a key artery that carries traffic across Kentucky and Ohio. But the president spoke about this not just being a bridge between two states, but a bridge between people. A bridge that continues and connects different centuries, different states, different political parties. A bridge to the vision of America I know we all believe in, where we can work together to get things done. Biden rode over to the site with someone who's often been a roadblock to the Democratic agenda, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. Biden said the two discussed foreign policy, specifically Ukraine, on the drive. It was an expression of unity, but they both acknowledged their differences. We all know these are really partisan times, but I always feel no matter who gets elected, once it's all over, we ought to look for things we can agree on and try to do those even while we have big differences on other things. McConnell has been a partisan for decades. But for a day, these two Washington insiders, Biden and McConnell, could look out at a steamboat on the Ohio River by a metal bridge and show that Washington can work, even if back in Washington, the House of Representatives is not working. Asma Khalid, NPR News. People who use illegal drugs in New York City can now find out exactly what's in them. That's thanks to a drug checking service being piloted by the city. Overdose deaths have soared in recent years, in part to the rise of fentanyl. But that isn't the only potentially dangerous or unexpected substance people might be consuming. WNYC's Caroline Lewis takes us to one of the pilot sites. And just a warning, this story includes the sound of a person overdosing on drugs. On a Tuesday afternoon, a woman walks into On Point NYC, a center for drug users in Harlem, and tells staff her husband is overdosing on the sidewalk outside. 
staff rushed through the crowded lounge to find the 65-year-old leaning on a lamppost, still conscious but struggling to walk. There we go. You see that condensation right there? That means he's breathing. They get him in a comfortable chair with an oxygen mask and a pulse oximeter clipped to his finger. His wife, Tammy Hogan, is visibly shaken. She says he's been doing dope since he was a kid, but the drug supply has changed. Not heroin no more. There's something else in the drugs that they are cutting these drugs with, and I don't understand why they're doing that to people. Because this is this people's lives, man. Hogan suspects her husband took fentanyl, but she wants to know for sure, and wants to know the potency of the drugs he bought. Thanks to New York City's new drug checking program, that's easy to find out. This is just one of the services offered at this overdose prevention center, where people can also use illicit drugs under staff supervision. So if you look at the sample here, the red is uh, the drug that was brought in, and then the blue is a reference. In a tiny room off the side of the lounge, Yarilix Estrada from the city health department is demonstrating how to find out the contents of a drug sample using an infrared spectrometry machine, a device you would typically find in a lab. Caffeine is often found inside of these samples. Quinine is often found inside of these samples because it gives a similar taste and um, feeling of itchiness as heroin. Estrada said some clients still think their drugs contain heroin, but increasingly they're getting the more powerful opioid fentanyl mixed with other chemicals. A basic test strip could tell someone whether their drugs contain any trace of fentanyl at all. But for opioid users, Estrada says it's often more helpful to know how much. There's a lot of folks that are buying things off the street under the, the assumption that they know what's in it, but they actually don't know and then have adverse reactions because of it in some situations. Fentanyl isn't the only concerning substance that pops up in the illicit drug supply. The drug checking program recently confirmed the presence of xylazine, an animal sedative that can be dangerous for humans. That discovery led the city health department to send out an alert to programs that serve drug users so they would know how to handle it. But the first priority is to inform individuals about what they're taking. Estrada recalled testing a bag of cocaine and finding that it was mixed with a pain reliever that has been outlawed in the U.S. because it's associated with kidney disease. She said the client already had kidney problems and was open to talking about their drug use. So being able to have that more in-depth conversation about like their long-term health goals and potentially like changing the supply or things like that. Studies of similar programs show that when someone finds out their drugs contain something unexpected, they're more likely to use less of it or change their behavior in some other way rather than throw the drugs out. But these programs can still play a role in making drug use safer. Terrence Jones, who works at On Point NYC, said even dealers have used the service on occasion. I think people have this, this notion that um, drug dealers don't care. Drug dealers are trying to get money. They ain't trying to go to jail for homicide, you know what I'm saying? Drug checking programs using sophisticated technology have recently started popping up in other parts of the U.S., including Massachusetts and North Carolina. Sheila Vacaria of the National Drug Policy Alliance said the biggest barriers to launching more of these programs are time and money. The machines used in New York cost about $40,000 and require significant training to use. But she also worried they could eventually face the type of backlash that has hampered some other harm reduction services, such as syringe exchanges. There are a lot of really challenging conversations happening and the backlash is mounting. 
But these programs are already starting to give public health officials and drug users themselves valuable insights into the rapidly changing drug supply. For NPR News, I'm Caroline Lewis in New York. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, WBUR's Gabrielle Emanuel details how easy it is for wheelchairs to break and how difficult and expensive it is to fix them, often throwing lives into disarray. And in 20 minutes, for the first time since 2017, the U.S. Embassy in Havana, Cuba, has resumed full consular and visa services. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. The GOP has taken back the House. Our goal was to stop the Biden agenda, to win the majority, and fire Nancy Pelosi. We achieved all of those. But with a fractious caucus and an ascendant far-right wing, how will Republicans run the House, and what do they want to achieve in the new Congress? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. If you've got a browning Christmas tree littering needles around your house, here's a heads up. This is the day Cambridge starts allowing residents to put their trees out for recycling on their recycling days. In Boston, pickups begin on recycling days beginning next week. In Worcester, you have to take it to one of three city-run lots. And remember, wherever you live, you need to take all the decorations off your tree before recycling it. Another sloppy day today. Fog, clouds, and rain this morning may give way to freezing rain at times today. We'll have a high in the mid-40s. Tonight, overcast skies with a low in the mid-30s. More drizzle or freezing rain possible overnight and on Friday, snow. We might get about an inch around Boston. Worcester might get two to three inches. The high will be in the mid-30s. Right now, it's 42 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Paychex, the Paychex team of professionals and compliance specialists work to help businesses automate all HR functions into one platform so that they can instead focus on their business and their employees. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. A broken wheelchair can bring the user's life to a halt. It creates medical and financial problems, and repairs to custom wheelchairs usually take a long time. To understand just how big a deal this is, listen to Gabriella Emanuel of our member station WBUR in Boston. Pamela Daly was on vacation in New York City. She took a moment to look up and admire the buildings. All of a sudden, the world just kind of started to tilt to the left. And I actually thought maybe we were having 
an earthquake. <laughs> it wasn't an earthquake, but it was a disaster for her. One of the small front wheels had fallen off her wheelchair. A passerby helped put it back on, but a few blocks away, the wheel came off again. Daly fell. A broken wheelchair and now a broken hip. I felt very vulnerable, extremely vulnerable. She says ultimately the wheelchair was worse than the hip. Without a working chair, she was stuck in her apartment, unable to get to work and doctor's appointments. This lasted more than a month. She waited for insurance to approve the repair and the part to arrive. Daly remembers when the technician finally came. And the guy opens the package in front of me, and it's the wrong part. And it always is the wrong part. Always. Always. Daly's story is not unique. For Morshid Buembo, it was a flat tire at work at Home Depot in Boston. Colleagues and friends tried to help him fix it. A police officer who is a friend of mine tried to take it at a gas station. Nothing could work. Buembo missed three days of work, and he estimates all told the ordeal cost him $700. I had to skip buying groceries. In a typical six-month period, more than half of wheelchair users report that their chairs break down. If 50% of people had their car break down in the six-month period, they'd probably be pretty upset. Lynn Warbay from the University of Pittsburgh has been tracking wheelchair breakdowns for years. Her research shows they often cause real problems, like missing school and increasing the chance of hospitalization. They've been linked to serious sores that can happen when a backup chair doesn't fit, or your bed bound. So some pretty significant health consequences. So what's going on? Mark Schmaler, also a professor at UPIT, says Medicare is part of the problem. Medicare doesn't have a allowance to do preventative maintenance. That's one of the biggest culprits right there. For a car, you have oil changes. For a bike, tune-ups. For a wheelchair, there's nothing. A part has to break before Medicare pays to fix it. And what Medicare does matters because private health insurers often follow suit. Schmaler says another problem originated in the late 90s and early 2000s. Attention Medicare and insurance beneficiaries. In TV ads, scammers convince people to get chairs on Medicare's dime. You may qualify for a power chair or scooter at little to no cost to you. About a billion dollars later, Schmaler says Medicare said it would only cover a wheelchair that's primarily used in the home. That means it isn't designed to withstand the wear and tear of life. It makes no sense whatsoever, but, you know, they had to do something. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services declined requests for an interview, but said its policies are guided by federal law. Charles Sargent is with National Seating and Mobility, one of the biggest providers of wheelchairs. He blames health insurers for the slow repairs. Often they require a doctor's approval before repairs can start. Sargent says that can increase repair times by a month or more. 99 plus percent of the time, they're going to give the authorization. Several health insurers declined interviews. Whatever the issue, wheelchair users say they are the ones stuck living with the consequences. It's something that prevents us from living to our fullest. You can't go to work. You lose your independence. Pamela Daly and Morshid Buembo say they go through life fearing a flat tire or a faulty motor. For NPR News, I'm Gabriela Emanuel.
The stars of the 1968 blockbuster Romeo and Juliet are suing Paramount Pictures for child sexual abuse over a nude scene filmed when they were teens. Now, in their 70s, their complaint was among the last ones filed under a California law that temporarily suspended the statute of limitations for child sexual abuse claims. Here's NPR's Netta Ulibi. Actor Leonard Whiting was only 16 years old when he played Romeo. His Juliet, Olivia Hussey, was 15. If that thy bent of love be honorable, yes. thy purpose marriage. The movie, directed by Franco Zeffirelli, was a box office smash, the Titanic of its day. It saved Paramount Pictures from financial ruin. But school kids for generations have been impressed by more than the beauty and splendor of this Shakespeare adaptation. I remember being in school, I had to get a permission slip to watch that movie from my mother. Tony Marinozzi remembers how scandalous it was to see Hussey topless and Whiting's rear end. Now he's a business manager representing both actors. The movie was not a moneymaker for them as it was for Paramount, and neither went on to A-list careers, which they blame in part on the film. Their lawsuit alleges negligence, appropriation of name and likeness, and unfair business practices, as well as child sexual abuse. The evidence is in the film. Marinozzi is talking about the nude scene, which Hussey has defended over the years. But according to the lawsuit, both actors now say they were coerced into the nudity and tricked about camera placement. Do you think think the scene is improved by it being played in the nude? Yes. Even in 1967, when teenaged Hussey and Whiting were promoting the film, you can hear their uncertainty in an interview on the British Film Institute website. Uh, Yeah, I I think. Because it was always played on the balcony anyway, the whole scene. And I think, was it Franco that decided first to do it in the bedroom? I I think so. Yeah. Director Franco Zeffirelli died in 2019. He also never responded to accusations of sexual assault decades ago by the young actor who played Benvolio. And it's hard to imagine 16-year-olds being filmed this way at a major studio today. But Tony Marinozzi says this lawsuit, which seeks millions of dollars in damages, is not about making deep changes. It is, he says, about closure. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. Paramount Pictures has not responded to NPR's request for comment. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition in an historic first, Pope Benedict XVI has been laid to rest after a funeral presided over by his successor. It's 829. Coming to City Space January 25th, journalist and historian Dart Adams discusses his book, Instead We Became Evil, about the life of Danish rapper Slayman. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The new Congress still has no House Speaker. Republican Kevin McCarthy of California has come up short in each of six rounds of voting over the last couple of days. A third day of voting is expected to begin this afternoon. NPR's Deidre Walsh says a group of conservative lawmakers remains opposed to McCarthy. The group opposing Kevin McCarthy got behind a new candidate, Florida Congressman Byron Donalds, who is black. He was first elected just two years ago. Texas Congressman Chip Roy, who 
nominated him pointed out he could become the first black speaker. But Donald's just got 20 votes, and he actually admitted he wasn't really planning to run, but he was trying to move forward the effort to try to get Republicans to a consensus. California is under a state of emergency as heavy rains continue falling over much of the state. The latest storm system is expected to dump more than six inches of rain in the San Francisco Bay Area. Matt Gillum with member station KCRW says officials are concerned about potential flooding and mudslides. L.A. and some other urban areas in the southern portion of the state could see up to four inches of rain, while the foothills could get up to eight. Meanwhile, high mountain areas could get two feet of snow and wind gusts of up to 55 miles per hour. In Sonoma County, authorities say a young child was killed yesterday when a falling tree hit a house. This is NPR News from Washington. Scientists in the U.K. say 2022 was the warmest year on record in Britain. The Met Office Weather Agency says the annual average temperature was 50 degrees, or a little more than 10 degrees Celsius. That's the highest average temperature dating back to 1884. That's when record-keeping began there. Scientists cite human activity for the rise, largely fossil fuel emissions. The World Health Organization is expressing concerns about a surge of coronavirus infections in China. As NPR's Jason Bobian reports, the U.N.'s health agency worries China is undercounting infections and downplaying the health risks. COVID has been spreading rapidly in China after the country abandoned its zero-COVID policy. But since China lifted those strict lockdown measures last month, the WHO says Beijing hasn't been fully reporting the number of COVID infections, hospitalizations, or deaths. Some experts predict that as many as 1.7 million people in China could die of COVID-19 by the end of April as the disease rips through communities with little immunity to the virus. Many people lack natural exposure to COVID, and vaccination rates among the elderly remain relatively low. Officials with WHO say China has sufficient stockpiles of vaccines. The problem, they say, is that those vaccines still haven't gotten to some of the most vulnerable people in the country. Jason Bobian, NPR News. I'm Dave Mattingly, NPR News in Washington. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. It'll be a history-making day today in Massachusetts. Maura Healey will be sworn in as governor. She is the first openly lesbian woman elected to that job in the country. Tanya Neslusen is the executive director of LGBTQ advocacy organization Mass Equality. She says Healy's election shows that candidates can now be judged on their merits rather than their personal lives. It's not just about Governor-elect Healy. It's about all of the young lesbians and queer kids who now see being a governor as a possibility. Kim Driscoll will become lieutenant governor today. Healy and Driscoll will be the first pair of women elected as governor and lieutenant governor in the country. Amanda Hunt is the executive director of the Barbara Lee Family Foundation, which studies women in politics. To watch Senate President Karen Spilka swear in Maura Healy as governor, they'll never remember a time that women were not in power. And that's when we think we will see a real shift in public opinion. One other historic note, Andrea Campbell will become the state's attorney general today. She's the first black woman elected to that post in state history. Stay with WBUR for today's inauguration. Our live coverage begins with Radio Boston starting this morning at 11.
As one of her final acts as Attorney General, Maura Healy is ordering the installation of air monitors in the Pioneer Valley. The project aims to help local leaders keep an eye on pollution issues. Healy says low-income communities in that area have been disproportionately affected by poor air quality. A state watchdog says the Chelsea Soldiers' Home is in a catastrophic state of dysfunction. The state inspector general says conditions at the facility include feces and dead rodents in rooms. He also believes there may be a toxic work environment there. He's asking the state Health and Human Services Office to make fixes quickly. Governor-elect Healy is expected to appoint a new HHS chief shortly after taking office. It's 835. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. The Celtics will be in Dallas tonight to play the Mavericks. The Bruins are in Los Angeles to skate with the Kings. Showers may turn to freezing rain at points today, and we'll have some areas of fog. When it's not raining, it'll be cloudy with temperatures in the low 40s. Those fall to the mid-30s tonight, and there may be more rain and freezing rain overnight. Tomorrow, we end the week with a good chance of snow. The Boston area might get as much as an inch. Around Worcester, there might be as much as three inches. It'll be in the mid-30s. Right now, it's 41 degrees in Boston at 835. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. Today at the Vatican, a living pope, Pope Francis, presided at a requiem mass for his predecessor, Benedict XVI, who died on Saturday at the age of 95. Tens of thousands of people attended this outdoor mass. At the end of the ceremony, the late former pope was buried in a private service at the crypt of St. Peter's Basilica, alongside his predecessors. NPR's Silvia Poggioli is on the line from Rome. And Silvia, what was it like to be there? Well, you know, at the start, uh, it was a very somber mood, primarily because of damp weather and a thick fog that uh, then lifted and the sun came out. Uh, some mourners had arrived at the Vatican during the night, five hours before the funeral was to start. Hmm. The security was very tight. Uh, more than a thousand security personnel were called in for the event, and a no-fly zone was in effect over most of the city. Once people got in, what was it like? Well, actually, the ritual resembled funerals of reigning popes. Only a few specific prayers and readings had been eliminated. Pope Francis was wearing crimson vestments that are associated with papal funerals. He arrived in a wheelchair and sat for most of the time because of his knee ailment. And then he concelebrated mass with 125 cardinals, hundreds of bishops, thousands of priests. The ritual was really hardly low-key. Uh, only because the funeral was of a former pope, the Vatican invited only two official delegations, Italy and Germany. What did Francis say? 
Well, he recited Benedict's name several times in Latin in the prayers. In his homily, he didn't say very much about his predecessor. He spoke of the, quote, wisdom, tenderness, and devotion that he bestowed upon us over the years. He uttered Benedict's name only once in the homily, commending his spirit into God's hands. Benedetto, fedele amico dello sposo, Benedict, may your joy be complete as you hear his voice now and forever. And then at the end of the Mass, before the coffin was carried back into the Basilica, there was applause from the crowd. Francis stood up, blessed the coffin, and placed his hands on it. Sylvia, amid the ritual, there's some political substance here as well, as well as religious substance, because Benedict was seen as a standard bearer for conservative Catholics. Francis was seen as more liberal on many issues and has met with a lot of conservative resistance. And his predecessor was still around as he was trying to change the direction of the church on certain issues. Will he have more freedom now? It's hard to say uh, right away. Throughout um, his almost 10 years in retirement, Benedict himself never criticized Francis, and it's said that he resisted efforts by conservatives to challenge his successor. But now, even before Benedict was buried, his longtime secretary, Archbishop George Ganswein, in an interview with the German Catholic weekly Tagepost, did not mince words. He said that Francis's decision to sharply curtail use of the old Latin mass, which is very dear to Catholic traditionalists, quote, broke Benedict's heart. Ganswein said the old mass was a source of spiritual life and nourishment for many saints. It's really unusual to hear such outright criticism so soon. Hmm. Uh, So Benedict, of course, made it possible for Francis to be pope by retiring, which other popes in the past had not done. Is this now a precedent? Is this likely to be the normal course? It could be. It could be. There's been a lot of speculation that the Vatican is drawing up specific guidelines on papal retirement. Francis himself has not ruled out the possibility of resigning if he feels he can no longer run the Catholic Church. And Pierre Silvia Pajoli in Rome. Silvia, thanks. Thank you, Steve. The U.S. Embassy in Cuba has resumed full consular and visa services in Havana for the first time since 2017. The U.S. says the reopening is to ensure the safe and legal migration of Cubans. It comes during a mass exodus from the island. NPR's Ader Peralta joins us now from his base in Mexico City. Ader, let's start with the basics. Why was the embassy closed and, and what does this reopening mean? Yeah, so there was a huge drawdown of staff in 2017, and and that happened after the U.S. accused Cuba of the so-called sonic attacks uh, on American diplomats. And what actually happened uh, remains a mystery, but now the embassy says it is staffed and it is ready to process all immigrant visas. And when there was this skeletal staff, um, if you were Cuban looking for a visa, you had to fly to Guyana. Now Cubans can process their visas in Havana, but... As you noted, this comes at an extraordinary time for Cuba. Uh, Last year, about 250,000 Cubans left the island, but the Biden administration says it wants to issue about 20,000 visas this year. So there very well might be a huge mismatch between the Cubans who want to leave and the visas that are available. Yeah, and those sonic attacks were dubbed the Havana syndrome, very mysterious uh, (laughs) term there. So, okay, what does this reopening mean then? It doesn't seem like uh, much is going to change. 
I mean, I think it's it's likely that this won't lead to dramatic changes um, because Cuba is just in the middle of a huge economic crisis, which is a long time in the making. I mean, first, uh, the help it was getting from Venezuela collapsed, then the Trump administration hit it with new sanctions, then it got hit by COVID and hurricanes and a huge fire on its main power plants. Um, so Cubans are having a hard time getting the basics, everything from food to fuel. And this is the worst crisis Cuba has faced since the end of the Cold War. And it's hard to overstate how many Cubans are looking to leave. By some estimates, Cuba lost 2% of its population last year. Uh, U.S. Border Patrol says they've seen a 400% increase in migrants in the Florida sector since October. And of course, we see it here in Mexico. Lots of Cuban migrants make it to Central America and they walk north. It's worth noting that President Biden uh, will deliver a speech about immigration today and he will be here in Mexico next week. And certainly he and his Mexican counterpart uh, will be talking immigration. And Ader, what's the uh, Cuban government saying about this? I mean, like they've done in the past, they're uh, blaming the U.S. embargo for the troubles. But President Miguel Díaz-Canel actually gave a realistic assessment uh, in his New Year's speech. He called 2022 one of the worst years in decades, and he warned that 2023 could be worse. Let's listen. A las puertas de ese año más desafiante, los invito a trabajar con pasión y con ganas para seguir venciendo imposibles. He called on Cubans to work with passion to continue defying the impossible. Um, he said that he welcomes hope this new year. So clearly, um, there are no easy answers in Cuba at the moment. All right, NPR's Ader Peralta from Mexico City. Ader, thanks a lot. Thank you, eh? Coming up later this afternoon on All Things Considered, South Asians are one of the fastest growing ethnic groups in the U.S. And of all Asian American groups, they are the most liberal. To listen, stream NPR on your smartphone, computer, or just listen to your reliable radio. This is NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's Morning Edition, researchers are racing to figure out whether and how the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted the development of babies and young children. In your forecast, fog and showers this morning. The showers may turn to freezing rain at some points today. We'll have temperatures in the low 40s, and it'll be cloudy when it's not raining. Tonight, mid-30s, we may see more rain and freezing rain overnight. Friday, snow. Probably about an inch around Boston. Worcester may see two to three inches. Temperatures will be in the mid-30s. Right now it's 41 degrees in Boston at 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. Now in business news, state gaming regulators have approved another online sports betting app. Yesterday, the Gaming Commission gave the okay to the Barstool sports betting app. The commission had appeared hostile to Barstool and made it agree to several conditions. Online gaming is expected to go live in March. In-person betting will begin at the end of this month. Cambridge-based Moderna is buying a Japanese biotech company. Moderna is paying $85 million for Oricero Genomics. That company developed new methods to make synthetic DNA molecules. 
It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. What will growing up during the pandemic mean for kids and for the microbes in their bodies that help protect them? Here's NPR's Julie Deppenbrock. Studies are already underway to try to figure out how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected the development of babies and young children. Some researchers are looking specifically at changes to children's microbiomes. So the microbiome is the collective community of microbes that lives inside and on top of our bodies. That's Catherine Wu. She has a PhD in microbiology. She's also a staff writer for The Atlantic. It's kind of amazing to think about. Uh, The microbial cells in our persons um, actually outnumbers the human cells. They are basically everywhere and they help us do all sorts of things from digestion to calibrating our immune system to even helping our brains develop and function properly. The first few years of life are pivotal to the formation of our microbiomes and the pandemic may be changing that important process. Any disruptions in that sort of sensitive period early on, really in the first three-ish years of a kid's life, it's a pretty crucial period. But microbiologists don't yet have a full understanding of exactly what can disrupt the formation of a microbiome and of what disruptions matter for future health. Maria Gloria Dominguez Bello. I'm a professor of microbiology at Rutgers University. Dominguez Bayo says it's not just about coming in contact with viruses and bacteria. We more and more are confirming that things like stress, psychological stress, can affect the microbiome and vice versa. And Wu says there are any number of things that could affect a child's microbiome. Could it even be infections from this particular coronavirus? Could it be something about big socioeconomic changes that happened during the pandemic? So many things have changed. Even if scientists are pretty sure the pandemic has affected microbiome formation, they're a long way from understanding what that'll mean for kids who are growing up in the COVID era. It's going to be a really tricky thing to answer, but it's probably good that people are paying attention to it because we're still trying to figure out what sort of early life interruptions can impact how the microbes in our bodies really function. Are changes in microbiome formation since the pandemic started necessarily a bad thing? Wu says that's also going to be tricky to answer. Scientists don't actually know if some of those behavioral changes like frequent sanitizing, frequent distancing, all that stuff, they don't know if it had any really calculable impact at all. It could even be a net positive, as some scientists pointed out. And regardless of what future research shows about how pandemic behavior changes altered microbiomes... None of this discussion is an indictment of the behavioral changes that people undertook. You know, it was so important to mask. It was so important to reduce the spread of this new coronavirus. Wu says there's no one perfect way to build a microbiome. And things like personal hygiene and getting outside, which a lot of people prioritized during the pandemic, can only serve to enrich the health of kids in the long term. For NPR News, I'm Julie Deppenbrock. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, after drastically increasing its headcount to keep up with the demand for its cloud-based software during the pandemic, Salesforce says it's reducing office space and laying off about 10 percent of its workforce. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Birch's School, a nature-based school for curious learners pre-K through 8th grade. Open house this Saturday, January 7th from 1 to 3. More at birchesschool.org. The Supreme Court overturned decades of abortion rights precedent last year, a decision that is emboldening conservative lawmakers at the state level. Conservative states are not going to let up on the gas. I'm Mary Louise Kelly, a look at anti-abortion laws under consideration across the country. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Cloudy and foggy today in the low 40s. There's a good chance of rain and at times freezing rain. Mid-30s tonight with more rain and freezing rain possible overnight. Snow tomorrow in the mid-30s. Expect about an inch around Boston, two to three inches around Worcester. It's 40 degrees in Boston at 851. Alexa enthroned. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive Insurance. Customers can simplify their insurance needs and protect what's important by bundling home and auto. Learn more about bundling at Progressive.com. And by Paychex, where HR, insurance, benefits, and payroll integrate into one platform. Whether two or 2,000 employees, Paychex can help make HR simple for businesses and employees. I'm David Brancaccio. First, there's news that layoffs at Amazon will be more than expected, about 18,000 people with word to individual employees starting on January the 18th. This is 6% of Amazon's corporate workforce. Now, most economists are predicting a recession this year, a consequence of the fight against inflation. Eleven months ago, Amazon doubled base salary to attract more people after benefiting mightily from shop at home early in the pandemic. Also, the business software company Salesforce is laying off about 10% of its people, 8,000 workers. Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes has that. At the start of the pandemic, lots of businesses that had resisted using cloud-based software suddenly kind of had to. Sid Nog is vice president of research at Gartner. Applications that were running in their private data centers, they could not access because these physical locations were closed down. So they turned to companies like Salesforce and moved operations to the cloud. Which meant, says Dan Ives with Wedbush Securities. Salesforce had to spend like a 1980s rock star to keep up with the demand. But now we're in the equivalent of the grunge period, where people are having angst about the economic future. And those companies that spent a lot of money moving to the cloud are starting to slow their IT spending. Because companies don't need as many bells and whistles. And as you start to have a glut of software, that's where you start to see a much different environment. Ive says Salesforce's restructuring plan is a sign the company is maturing and learning that even the most raucous after parties can't go on forever. I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace. Tomorrow we get the big government reports on hiring and unemployment for December. Today we have a sneak preview from payroll processor ADP. It says private payrolls went up by 235,000. 
That is stronger hiring than expected. This adds to the narrative that interest rates will stay higher longer. Half an hour before the opening bell, stock index futures have turned down, down three-tenths percent for Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures. The Food and Drug Administration says abortion pills can now be sold at retail pharmacies. Some major chains could start to dispense the medication. Until now, the first of two pills used for a medication abortion was only available through certified doctors or clinics or a limited number of mail-order pharmacies. The FDA now says any retail pharmacy can get certified to dispense the pills directly to patients. Patients will still need a prescription from a certified prescriber. In an emailed statement, CVS told me it plans to seek certification, quote, where legally permissible. Walgreens hasn't responded to my request for comment, but it told Reuters it's reviewing the updated FDA rules. It is possible that women in states that have banned abortion could travel to states where it's still legal to obtain a medication abortion. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genser for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by JLL, a commercial real estate leader. JLL has local experts with global expertise dedicated to using data and technology to solve today's complex real estate challenges. Learn more at JLL.com. JLL, see a brighter way. And by Viking, exploring the world in comfort. Viking offers a small ship experience with cultural enrichment and destination-focused dining. More at Viking.com. The Consumer Electronics Show, technically just CES now, kicks off today in Las Vegas. Gadget City on display will be an $11,000 toilet seat equipped with Alexa voice assistant. It's not easy being Alexa. And there'll be a lot of cars that plug in. Here's a fellow who goes every year he can, Alex Heath, an editor at The Verge. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I mean, these things were traditionally huge. Then there was COVID. You think huge again in terms of attendees? The attendance this year is definitely a lot less than it was pre-COVID. That said, they're still expecting, based on what I've seen here in Vegas, uh, roughly 100,000 people, which is, you know, nothing to shy at. Electric vehicles, they've been big in recent years at the show, and I think we'll see more this week. Yes, that's right. There's a lot of partnerships happening with kind of the the tech companies that make the innards of these electric vehicles, since they are essentially computers on wheels companies like NVIDIA. You've got companies like BMW giving, you know, keynote speeches this year. It does feel like it's become a bit of a tech auto show versus everything else. And, you know, the backdrop of all that is that Tesla is having a really rough time. Their stock's down quite a bit. And so everyone's coming for Tesla's lunch and trying to uh, compete with them. And so, yeah, there's there's a ton of auto stuff this year. Yeah, that includes Volkswagen, which is launching the ID7, it looks like, which is a a sedan that looks like it would try to compete with Tesla's core core vehicle there. That's right. There's several vehicles being announced and some concept vehicles, which are more just to show kind of where the tech is headed. You know, everyone's in this kind of interesting waiting period to see how soon will we actually have fully autonomous driving And when that happens, how do we redesign the cars and, you know, potentially take away things like the steering wheel? Those are the kinds of conversations being had. And I'm thinking, given everything with FTX and Bitcoin's precipitous decline, you think less crypto at this show or am I wrong? 
Definitely less crypto. Crypto was one of those things that was really hyped during the pandemic. And obviously, as you mentioned, with the collapse of FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried now uh, facing trial, that balloon has been popped quite a bit. There is still a bit of crypto programming. You know, Coinbase is sending people, for example. But that's one of those hype cycles that now, you know, I think going into 2023, we're entering a bit of a a trough of disillusionment, as uh, people in tech would say. And I think that also extends to another area, uh, which has more of a presence at CS, but is definitely more muted, which is the metaverse. And I think that's actually a that's also a a bit of a thing that was overhyped and is now coming back down to earth. Alex Heath is an editor at The Verge and author of the tech newsletter, Command Line. All right, have a good CES. Thanks. Also being touted at the huge trade show, a Samsung smart oven with video from inside so you can live stream to the world the spectacle of the burning of the pie crust, that ritual. I'm David Brancaccio, Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBOR. Maura Healey will be sworn in today as the state's new governor. She's the first woman ever elected to that post in Massachusetts and the first openly lesbian woman elected governor in the country. Our live coverage begins at 11 a.m. with Radio Boston. Listen here on air or on the WBOR mobile app and get a recap of today's events this afternoon on All Things Considered beginning at 4 and at WBOR.org. Clouds give way to rain and maybe freezing rain at points today. Temperatures will be in the low 40s. Tonight, clouds in mid-30s with a chance of more rain and freezing rain. Expect snow tomorrow. About an inch around Boston, the Worcester area may get up to 3 inches. It'll be in the mid-30s. It's 40 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software. Powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com slash MOS. The GOP has taken back the House. Our goal was to stop the Biden agenda, to win the majority, and fire Nancy Pelosi. We achieved all of those. But with a fractious caucus and an ascendant far-right wing, how will Republicans run the House, and what do they want to achieve in the new Congress? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.